0: Well, God bless you, and welcome to NETS 3, Stewards of the Mysteries of God. This is Session 6, The Birth of Jesus, the Passover Lamb. Now what I want to look at tonight is the birth of Jesus, but I want to look at it from a scriptural perspective, not necessarily a traditional perspective. Now I don't teach things just to teach something different from tradition. I'm happy with tradition. Traditions are for a reason and they serve our purposes. I'm very happy to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on December 25th. And I'm very happy to celebrate the birth of Jesus uh, at Christmas time because we've been doing it for centuries. <laughs> and so all of society gets into it, even the secular world gets into it. And I'm grateful for that. It's a time when we think about giving, it's a time when we talk about Jesus. It's time when even on uh, the radio you hear about the birth of Jesus. Now we know historically that Christmas was celebrated during the time of the winter solstice. In a sense it came in because of the pagan holiday celebrating the birth of the sun, S-U-N. Now we don't worship the sun, S-U-N, as a pagan would, but we do worship the sun, S-O-N, the son of God. And although the winter solstice is not generally considered the birth of the Son of God by theologians. Nevertheless, I personally think it's not a bad time to think about the birth of the sun, S-O-N, because of the fact that the sun, S-U-N, is in a sense reborn. In other words, it's the beginning of the new year in light of the days becoming longer and longer. From that point in the year on, the days are getting longer and longer. So it is, in a sense, looking forward to the spring and the new birth of all the leaves and the trees and the animals and so on. And so, although we recognize the historical reason that uh, the birth of Jesus was celebrated because it was easy to celebrate during the pagan holidays of the birth of the sun, S-U-N, Uh, Really, even in this day and time, I can think of the rebirth or the new birth of the earth, even as it's by the birth of the Son, S-O-N, and His perfect life that brought about for us the availability of the new birth and the regeneration of our spirits. And so anything that brings up Jesus Christ in our world, I'm all for, but When it comes to Scripture and what does Scripture say, then I believe that there is a reason that we ought to know things. Now, I am not for just knowing something just for the sake of knowing it. There's a lot of things I could teach just because I know it, and it might be different than what you've been taught, and yet it's there in Scripture. But that's not our purpose. If all we do is teach something just because it's there, the Bible says very clearly that knowledge puffs up and we don't want to be puffed up. But if there's a reason to know something, and if there's a reason to look at Scripture, and if it happens to differ from what we've thought or what tradition says, then if there's a purpose that we can apply it in our lives, then we ought to know about it. Because knowledge may puff up, but knowledge of the truth will make us free. It was John the Baptist that said, when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus came, when He was an adult, to His cousin John to be baptized, before He could even get to John, He said that of him. He said it again of him when He saw him again after he came out of the wilderness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Really, that basically boils it all down. We can get off on tangents and we can get off on information But if we get off track on who Jesus is, then we really have done something that we shouldn't have done. Because we ought to keep our mind on the basics and the foundation of who Jesus is, because it's only by Him and in His name that we can be saved. And that's what it's all about. Salvation, eternal life, and then walking with the Lord now. Well, let's take a look in the book of Luke, if you would, at the birth of Jesus. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, I want to tell you a little side note on swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were not a type of clothes that you got down at the local Bethlehem Walmart. Swaddling clothes was a cloth that was dipped in salt and salted water. And it was generally done for an important child like a king, a a prince, Uh, It was done to represent the covenant of salt, that this child's words would be salted. If they saw that this was a godly child, they would take note of this child. So in Jesus' case, they knew this was the Son of God, and they wrapped Him in swaddling clothes. It was a symbol of covenant to God that this babe's words would be true, would be salted. But the interesting thing is, that the child would be wrapped only for a few seconds. It would only be wrapped, and there might be a prayer said, and then he would be unwrapped and dried, and he would be put in his his, uh, little blanket, and so on and so forth. So the angel was saying to the shepherds that when you get there, this will be a sign that you're going to get there at that exact moment that he's wrapped in the swaddling clothes. Well, verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth... And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived In the womb. Let's talk a minute about this section before we read some more. Now, the birth of Jesus is important. The fact that he came is very important. The fact that he was born of a virgin is important. That he was conceived by Mary of the Holy Ghost. That he was conceived in the lineage of David, because the prophecies were that the, the king would come out of David's lineage that he would be from Bethlehem. Now there were other prophecies that said, I'll call him out of Egypt. So some people who read that would think, well, this guy could never be the Messiah because he didn't come out of Egypt. But we know if we were to read on that that actually Joseph took his wife and child into Egypt for a while to protect them. Later, when uh, Joseph went back to Nazareth, which was his town, and Jesus was raised there so that when Jesus as an adult went into ministry, The Pharisees thought, well, Jesus came from Nazareth. There's no prophecy about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. But had they checked, they would have found that He was born in Bethlehem, taken to Egypt, brought out of Egypt, and then raised in Nazareth. Didn't say anywhere in Scripture that the Messiah couldn't be raised in Nazareth. But you have to do a little research. And that's what we need to do, too, with Scripture. We need to look past what appears to be obvious. Now, In light of the birth of Jesus and the timing of the birth of Jesus, the timing of the birth of Jesus might be important to you and it might be important to me, but I just want to keep in mind it's not as important to us as the fact that He was born and that He was perfect and that He did come to save us. Now, if we'll keep that firm and straight in our minds, then we can go and look at some of these other things, okay? And we don't have to be dogmatic about what we're going to look at. If you want to see it a little different, it's not going to hurt my feelings. But I've spent a lot of time looking into some of these things. When I was, even when I was a little child, I remember talking to my mom uh, at Christmas time about Jesus' birth, and she even said, even when I was a little boy, that um, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. When I was in college, when I was in Bible school. We learned different things about his birth and different. Uh, Theories and so on about when he was born. And most of the time it came up with sometime in the fall. Then later in life, doing Bible studies and looking into various things, including astronomy and so on and so forth, when the star may have come and so on, and what that might have meant in light of when Jesus was born in terms of the Magi coming and following the star. And some of those things are really interesting. And some of those things, if you knew them, you could get a big head because you'd be so smart and you could explain all kinds of things about the the course of Abijah and when Zacharias went into the temple and served and all those kind of things. And you know what, though? (laughs) I'm not so sure that I ever really was happy when I learned any of those kind of things. In the Bible, it's interesting that you'll see that the Bible says about itself that truth is easy to be entreated. Some of the things I learned, not just about this subject, but about other subjects, some of the things I learned gave me a headache. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that you should interpret Scripture by whether you get a headache from it or not. (laughs) Because if it's true, it's true. But I do know this. Our inner witness is a guide. And it's a guide in life. And it also is a guide in how we look at the book about life. Now, the Apostle Peter said that we have a more sure word of prophecy. So even though the spirit of prophecy can lead us and does lead us to all truth, we do need to understand Scripture is paramount. And sometimes we can be led to see something prophetically, and we might not see the whole picture. So we have to keep an open mind. But I do want to share with you what I feel the Lord has led me to understand in light of this, that I kept it to myself. I felt it was for my understanding for many years, actually for a couple of decades because I didn't feel that it was important uh, to share in light of just sharing for the sake of sharing it. But when we can share it in light of understanding Scripture, and share it in light of example of how, for instance, scriptural progression, how we can look at the various Gospels to see how they fit or don't fit. If we know something that's true about Scripture, then it's got to fit with all Scripture. If we have something that seems to make sense, but it doesn't fit, it ends up raising more questions than it answers, then perhaps we don't really have the truth. At least we should question it. Well, in looking at Scripture, I try to, instead of going into all that scientific kind of thinking and all that kind of in-depth, which is all fine and dandy, but I try to be simple, because I know the Bible was written many, many times by simple men, You know, some of them were herdsmen. Some of them were fishermen. And they wrote the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. And so I think sometimes we get a little too intellectual in trying to understand what those herdsmen, fishermen wrote. So I try to sometimes just look at it from a herdsman's perspective or from a fisherman's perspective or from somebody that's a farmer or a hunter or somebody that just keeps things simple. And I was looking at these verses that we just read here, and something just sort of stuck out. And here's what it is. It says, verse 8, And now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, the Bible is an Eastern book, and we need to understand it in light of Eastern customs and Eastern traditions and Eastern uh, way of life. Now, There are rules for interpreting Scripture, and sometimes when there's there's something we need to know that's not actually in the Scripture, we need to go outside of the Scripture, Now, that's going to hold less weight than what's in the Scripture. It certainly should never contradict what's in the Scripture. But on the other hand, sometimes there is information that we can get, for instance, from the Roman uh, records as to when did Caesar Augustus send out this requirement that the people be counted in taxed. Those are things that are outside of scripture, but they can help us to interpret things within scripture. So also with uh, culture. So I asked myself, when is it that shepherds watch their flocks at night? Because that's in there for a reason. It says that came at a time when shepherds were out in the field watching their flocks by night. Now, I don't know about you, but shepherds are human beings and they like to sleep. And they generally, like the rest of us, sleep at night. That's why they have something called a sheepfold. And they put their sheep in the sheepfold. And matter of fact, Jesus in John chapter 10 even talked about the door to the sheepfold. And He said He was the door. Because a good shepherd, not only would they have various sheepfolds out around the country, and whichever one they were closest to at night, they'd put the sheep in. But the shepherd himself would actually sleep across the doorway. In other words, he would literally become the door. That's why when Jesus said, I am the door, no one can come to the Father but by me, they understood in their mind, they could understand, here's the great shepherd sleeping at the door to the sheepfold. Because that way a wolf has to come over the shepherd or over the wall. And Jesus said that in John 10. Jesus didn't say he was like a door. He said, I am the door. But these shepherds weren't doing that. These shepherds were watching over their flocks by night. Well not being a shepherd, not being really even a, a rancher, it, I had to look to see when it is that shepherds watch their flocks by night, and I found it fairly easy and it made perfect sense. It was interesting how the Lord confirmed it to me though I was taking the Boy Scouts out camping and it was right after Christmas time and it was just before New Year's, and we were going out for actually a New year's camp out, and we were going out in the snow and I was driving a truck full of boys, and the, the one young man sitting next to me, we were talking about I don't know what, and, and he says to me, you know, Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. I said he wasn't. I said, now when was he born then? He goes, well, he says, it says that the shepherds were watching their flocks by night, and everybody knows you only watch your flocks when they're lambing. <laughs> well, not everybody does know that, but everybody that's a shepherd knows that. Everybody that's a rancher knows that you watch your cattle at night when they're calving. Why? Because they need help many times calving or lambing. So in other words, this little shepherd boy knew perfectly that Jesus was born when lambs are being born. Now we should be able to see that from Luke too. When, is, when was Jesus born? We know this. He was born when shepherds watched their flocks by night, right? Right? We know that much. That's right there. I could say that, and you could say that. Now, when do shepherds watch their flocks by night? According to what I see, according to the shepherds I know and the ranchers I know, you watch your livestock when they're lambing, calving, foaling, whatever, which is spring or late winter in our country, because the further north, generally, the further away from the equator, the earlier in the season livestock will give birth because that gives them a longer time before the following fall because the first part of their the life of a a lamb or calf or a foal they're uh, suckling so it doesn't matter if there's snow on the ground but when they're a little bit older they need grass on the ground that's why they're born a little earlier in the season the further away from the equator and the closer to the equator then the later they can be born that's with domestic animals generally and it's with wild animals always. So here we have something written right in there by Luke. Once again, he gave us a clue because he knew that people reading that would know that shepherds watch over their flocks by night in the spring. But 2,000 years later, we don't have as many sheep. We don't watch them. We're not living in that climate anymore. We're Not, not everybody is in that area. So We have to go back to that place. You know, even today, that's when they land. But still, we have to go back there and find out for ourselves. What's interesting, there's some other little clues here that are just interesting, I think. He was born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is about seven miles from Jerusalem. It just so happens that Bethlehem is sort of a farming community. And it just happened to be the place where the priests in Jerusalem had special flocks where they would get lambs for sacrifice. Now lambs for the special, the biggest sacrifice of the year, the biggest festival of the year, which would be Passover. We're going to look at that a little bit. The Passover lamb had to be the lamb of the first year, meaning the lamb that was born now could be used for sacrifice next year at Passover time. Because he would be the lamb of the first year. So at this time, when their shepherds are watching their flocks by night, helping the little lambs be born, which can happen anytime, 24 hours a day. At the same time, in the same place outside of Bethlehem, where the, the sacrificial lambs for next year are being born, the Passover lambs are being born, Jesus, our Passover lamb, was being born where? In an inn? In a castle? No. In a stable. Another example, laid in a manger as a symbol that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now let's keep reading. Let's jump on down to verse 40 in Luke chapter 2. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem, according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, that's not abnormal for a 12-year-old to be listening and asking questions. Every year at the Passover and at other feasts, young children would come that were being taught the scriptures, and they would come and listen to the rabbis, and they would have at the end of every session a time when they could ask questions. But there is something interesting that was going on here with Jesus. Verse 47, And all who heard Him were astonished at His understanding and His answers. Now that's something different that you don't usually see with a 12-year-old or younger. That is, they were giving answers. Because what they would not do with a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 10-year-old, that is, they would not have them answering questions because they wanted them to learn. They could ask questions, but the rabbis would not ask the child questions because they didn't believe in guessing. They believed in knowing the scriptures, not guessing about what it might say. So that's interesting. Well, verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, that almost sounds rude. Think about that. Mary and Joseph have looked for their son for three days. And when they find him, she's naturally wondering, you know, what's up with you? And he says, oh, sorry, mom. I'm really sorry. I, you know, I put you through all that. I didn't mean to. Uh, would you forgive me? No, he says, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Whack! <laughs> you know, hey, kid, the Bible says to honor your father and mother and the Lord. <laughs> Doesn't that almost sound like dishonor? It does to me. The thing is, though, it's Jesus, so it can't be what it sounds like. But I think sometimes because it is Jesus, we ignore what was said. We overlook the fact of how it sounds. That could definitely sound rude. It obviously couldn't be rude because it was Jesus. But his parents didn't understand what was going on. Well, verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Now I want to share something with you. Now I've heard and I've read various things and basically guesswork on Why Jesus, at 12 years old, was answering questions and so on. None of the suggestions or theories that I've read or heard can be substantiated. So I choose to not take them too seriously. Let me share with you what I believe. I really didn't see this until I first saw what it meant to know when shepherds watched their flocks by night. Because here's a young man... 12 years old, very clearly says he went to Jerusalem to the feast of the Passover when he was 12. But here's the thing. He went one way, but something changed when he was there. And even his parents weren't quite ready for the change. I think it's interesting that the change is a type of what was going to happen later in life because it was three days that he was gone from them and they found him in the temple. So something changed, and then for three days he was on his own before they found him. We know that many years later, there was a time when he left all of us for three days, but he said, I won't leave you orphans, I will come again. And he did. After three days, he was raised from the dead. We know for sure that he was crucified at the time of the Passover, and we're going to look a little bit at that, because that ties in with this birth. It's very important for us to understand the sacrifice that Jesus made, even if we tend to be a little bit uh, flexible on some of the dates. But I think it's nice to look at these things because we do need to know about the sacrifice of Jesus and the completeness of it. Well, so I do believe there's a type in there of those three days. What changed? He said, don't he, Jesus, the child, assumed that his parents ought to know something that to him was so obvious. Let me tell you what I believe happened, because I do believe he was born in the spring, which the Passover is the main feast of the year, and it's one of the spring feasts. When a Hebrew child or a Jewish child turns 13, he goes through something called the Bar Mitzvah. When he goes through the Bar Mitzvah, now something has changed, because now he's looked at as a man. Now That doesn't mean he's a man in light of going into ministry or going into the military. But it means he's a man in light of marriageability in their custom. But also, more importantly, he's a man in light of his responsibility before his father God to understand and apply the scriptures that he's been learning for 12 years. So when he said, Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? he was speaking like a man. That was responsible to God to apply in his own life the commandments. So what could have happened that would cause that? Luke is very clear that he was 12 when he went. So what could have happened was his birthday and his bar mitzvah. If he really indeed was born in the spring, that would fit perfectly. And if it happened at the time of the Passover feast, then we even have a clear time frame of when his birthday was. It was very close to Passover, which also is very close to when those little lambs that were being sacrificed that particular year were born just a year before. Let's look a little bit at the Passover. Now, what I want to look at first is the Passover in the year that Jesus was crucified. And let's look in Matthew 26. In verse 1 and 2 it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that He said to His disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Let's jump on down to verse 17 of Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of the Feast of unleavened Bread. Now, We've learned already that when you see a word in italics, that that word has been added. And sometimes it changes what's said, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it helps us understand what's being written, and sometimes it's not. Interesting enough, though, the English Bibles that we have, especially most of the older ones, as wonderful as they are. As a matter of fact, many of the older versions are really more accurate, in my opinion, than some of the more modern ones. However... What they didn't have, what the translators didn't have many times was an understanding of the feasts and the customs of Judaism because they were translated generally in northern European countries by northern European people. They might have been able to understand Greek and Hebrew, but they didn't necessarily always have an understanding of the customs and the Jewish feasts that were not generally practiced in their area. So here in Matthew 26, verse 17. it says now on the first and then day is in italics of the feast of is in italics the unleavened bread now biblically you can see it and we'll read it here i think uh is that passover began with the selection of the sheep the lamb that would be the the sacrificial lamb and then for four days it would be brought into the home and it would be taken care of in the home and then on the The eve before Passover was when it would be killed and it would be cooked. And then Passover would begin. That would begin on the 10th of Nisan. We'll read this in a second. But then on the 14th of Nisan was the first day of Passover. But then after that would begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that would go on for seven days. But if you knew about the feast, you would understand that Passover had to come first and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would come after the Passover. (laughs) But here it says, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the next question is, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So in this case, if you read that, you'd think that can't be true because the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes before Passover in this. But if you take out those italicized words, it doesn't say that. It says, now on the first of the unleavened bread. In other words, the beginning of that time, which included Passover. Then it makes sense. So these are just little keys we need to have to understand what it says. So they, they asked Jesus, where do you want us to go prepare for the Passover? And He said in verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at Ham and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now they were eating, and they said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then it goes on, and we read about the Last Supper. Now, just from reading that, it sounds like, well, once we figure out that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is after passover not before we've got to have that because that's that's scriptural but then it says i basically if he says i go into the city i will keep the passover is i desire to keep the passover with you and so he went where they directed him they prepared for the passover that's in verse 19 so then in verse 20 it says and when evening had come and they start their meal so it's Natural for those of us in the West that don't understand all these customs to think that since they went into town to prepare for the Passover, then they start to eat, that this is the Passover that they're eating. Wouldn't that make sense? It does to us, and mostly in the West, we believe the Last Supper was the Passover. But there's a couple of reasons why biblically we know that cannot be true. Let me show you one in the next verse. Verse 20, And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. You ate Passover standing up. And what did you have at Passover? You had lamb. There's no record of them having any lamb at the Last Supper. He washed their feet. Now, it's possible that they had their shoes on. and He took them off to wash their feet, but probably not. Probably the custom was you took your shoes off at the door, and then you would have your feet washed as you entered. But as we're going to read in a minute, when Moses received the requirements for Passover, they were to eat the Passover with their shoes on, standing. Hmm, that's interesting. But remember, because it's there makes it true, but because it's back-to-back doesn't mean it's there could be many things in between those two verses. Right? Let's continue. Let's look in uh, Luke chapter 22. I'll start in verse 7. Then came the day, which that word day can mean the time, the season, the period... Like the day of the Lord is at hand, doesn't mean just one day. But the season, the period, the time, and that's what it means here. Then came the day of unleavened bread, because we already know that the feast itself and the day they started that feast happens after Passover. The day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, or that sheep is being prepared to be killed. And He sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to Him, Where do you want to prepare? And He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, there will be a man who will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with My disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So when they had found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Literally, they prepared to keep the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down. Now see, we have a contradiction here, because Jesus of all people would know you don't sit down at the Passover. And the, 12 apostles with them. And he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired, past tense, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He says, I have been looking forward to, I have desired to keep Passover with you. But as we're going to continue, you're going to see that Jesus wanted to have Passover with them, sent them in to prepare a place where he could have Passover with them. But then as the the Spirit began to unfold for him, his calling, and the timing of his crucifixion, he realized at this point in time that he was not going to be able to keep the Passover with them, but that he was going to be the Passover lamb this year. Let's continue. He said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, if you didn't understand what Passover was and you just read this alone, you would think that Passover meant wine, wouldn't you? But we know Passover is not wine. But we know that the communion that the Lord set up for us is wine and bread. Let's continue. Let me just say this. He was replacing Passover, the Jewish custom, with communion, which was a new custom, to signify a new covenant. The Passover was the covenant that God made with Israel that he would pass over, the death angel would pass over, and that he would bring them out of Egypt. In a symbol, he was giving us the lamb, not a lamb, but the lamb without spot and without blemish, who would take away the sins of the world. And then therefore, from this point on, we would commemorate that broken body and that shed blood. Not with a yearly sacrifice of a lamb, but a very often remembrance of the Lord who died as our sacrificial lamb, but rose from the dead on the third day. Verse 19, And He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Likewise, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood which is shed for you. Now, by that, the cup and the bread, we understand that by His blood we receive our redemption. Our sins are washed away. But also by His broken body we have a covenant a promise of a new body, that our bodies will be resurrected and be like unto his glorious body. But in the meantime, because his body was broken, we also have available to us healing in this body, which we receive by faith, just as we received salvation by faith, not in faith in yourself, but in faith in Jesus and what he accomplished. The bread and the wine, the body and the blood, Let me read for you about the Passover feast out of Exodus chapter 12. When Moses was spoken to by God, this is what God said. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, the first month of the year, which was Nisan, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now remember, according to the Jewish day, their day began at six o'clock their day began at evening. Matter of fact in the book of Genesis you see that God Started time like that. He said and the evening and the morning were the first day He started time like that now we start our days in the middle of the night Which is kind of a silly time to start it especially if you don't have a clock <laughs> At least if you don't have a clock, you know when dark starts, you know when it's dark 30. <laughs> If it was up to me, I'd start at sunrise 30. (laughs) You know, that to me is the beginning of the day, but they began it at evening. And so when you look in scripture and you see about the beginning of the day, you have to understand the Hebrew day began at evening. And so when they took that little lamb and brought it into the house for four days, and then they killed that lamb and cooked that lamb, The Passover day itself began at evening. That lamb had already been sacrificed and had already been prepared for Passover. And then they began to eat. Let's continue. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boiled, at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its centrals. You shall let none of it remain till morning, and what remains until morning shall be burned with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. You see, they didn't sit with their shoes off, They stood with their sandals on, their staff in their hand, representing that they're going to leave in a hurry. They had the blood over the door and on the lintel because that represented the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, which is what causes death to pass over us for eternity. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be for a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast and by an everlasting ordinance. That Passover proved to be the deciding blow over all the gods of Egypt. And just as our Passover, Jesus Christ, is what we have on this earth now that is the key, the answer to all the gods of this world now, all the false gods, All the power of the false gods, the sicknesses, the confusion, the mental illness, everything that the gods of this world can think of, our Passover lamb has already given us the answer to overcome. Now, let's go back to the Passover at the time of Jesus' crucifixion in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, that's the time, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now remember, when he sent the disciples in, he said, I desire to keep the Passover. He had intended to keep the Passover with them. But it says here, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come sometime between when He sent them and the Last Supper, it all came together for Him. And He understood. Now you recall when He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, that even then He was still praying, Father, if this cup can pass for me, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. Even though He saw it, He didn't really necessarily like it. He knew it was going to be hard. And then here in verse 2 it says, and supper being ended. So here we have it. Before the feast of the Passover, and yet supper being ended, the last supper being ended. So this tells us right here very clearly that the last supper could not have been the Passover, even if we don't understand the fact of standing up while you eat the lamb and the fact that they didn't have lamb at the last supper. Right here, it's very clear. Now, when we begin to put all these together, they don't contradict one another anymore. If you were a Jew and you understood the Passover, and here you read that the Feast of Unleavened Bread came before Passover, you could discard the Bible because it doesn't fit with what you know to be true. But if we take out those italicized words that were added by someone that didn't understand the customs, it makes sense. If you thought that Jesus was keeping the Passover on the night of the Last Supper, and yet He sat. If you were a Jew and understood the feasts of the Passover, you would say that couldn't be. That has to be a counterfeit. That can't be a true word because you don't sit at Passover. But when you see the Scripture in all its goodness and its glory, understanding it from the perspective of those who wrote it and to whom it was written in light of their customs and culture, and put it in the timing of what the Scripture says it was, it all begins to fit. Now, Jesus went to Jerusalem when He was 12. It makes sense that He starts acting like a 13-year-old while He's there, if He happened to have turned 13 while He was there. If shepherds watch their flocks at night, which they did on the night of His birth, but if they do that, when lambs are being born, we know that lambs are born that time of year, then it begins to make sense that His birthday would be on the night that He was born. And that would have to be then around Passover time. And then it would make sense that when he went there, when he was 12, he had a bar mitzvah, and then he was required by God now to stand before the Lord in light of what it says a man should do and believe for himself and have faith for his own life. It would make sense then that right from the beginning, when he became a man in light of the legality at 13, immediately there was a type of His death, burial, and resurrection. Three days, and there He was in the temple. And here it says, Before the feast of the Passover, it all came together for Him. And now after supper had ended, the devil having already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Him. Now in John 18, 28, it says, And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they might eat the Passover. Now here it's very clear in John that the Passover hasn't occurred. And that here's these sanctified, sanctimonious Pharisees that are taking Jesus, wanting him to be crucified, the perfect lamb, and yet they're so religious. Well, they don't want to go into a, a building built by a Gentile because then they'll be unclean and they won't be able to keep the Passover. Well, if they're going to keep the Passover, obviously it hasn't passed. It didn't happen the night before when they were having the Last Supper. It's very clear here that the Pharisees knew the Passover hadn't occurred yet. In verse 39, but you have a custom, this is Pilate speaking. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And you know the story of Barabbas. At the time of the Passover, it's a custom that the Romans would release someone. You see, the Passover couldn't have been the Last Supper. And John 19, verse 14 will start. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. That's when they would begin to uh, take the lambs and begin to prepare them for the feast, for the sacrifice. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar! Huh! Remember when they took him to Pilate, they were almost mocking him, saying that he he has another king. But they were really angry because he was making himself equal with God by saying he was the Son of God. And so they're turning him into... Pilate and saying, well, we have no king but Caesar, which would be blasphemy to a Jew. Then he delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the center. This is the only gospel that says Jesus bore a cross. The other gospels are very plain that as soon as he came out of the praetorium, they grabbed a man named Simon of Cyrene and he bore the cross for Jesus because Jesus had been beaten so much. So what is it saying here when it says that Jesus bearing his cross? Well, think of it in light of the Passover. The blood from that Passover lamb was put on the doorpost and the lintel, the symbol of the cross, the blood. What was the cross that he bore? cross that He bore as the Lamb without blemish was the sins of all the world. John said it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. That cross that He bore were my sins and your sins, the cross that no one could bear. All of Israel could not have borne that cross, but Jesus bore that cross for us. Now, verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that's the 14th of Nisan, Very clear. That's the day that you take that little lamb that you have had in your house for four days now and you have to kill that little lamb. Jesus has been in Jerusalem now. Now they're taking him and they're crucifying him. At the same time, they're taking Jesus to Golgotha to crucify him on the cross. These little lambs that are in everybody's houses and in the temple are being prepared for the sacrifice. And about the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, when they began that, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, which is the 14th of Nisan, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. In other words, when these men were crucified, Jesus among them, that's getting towards evening. At evening, the Passover begins. They don't want these guys hanging there. On the Passover, so therefore, because they were being crucified, if they would break their legs, they would suffocate quickly. That's why these very nice religious men were asking him to hurry up the death sentence on these men. And you know the story. They went and they broke the legs of the men that were crucified with Jesus, but they came to Jesus and they were astonished because he was dead already. And here's what it says. Let's jump up and read this in Luke 23, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Okay? So he was taken at the sixth hour and crucified, and it was dark until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, unto your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When did he give up the ghost? Just Before Passover. Just at the time that the Passover lambs were being prepared for the feast. And verse... uh 46 of Matthew 27, it also says, "And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lamana sabatini. That is, my God, my God, why hath you forsaken me? It's very clear that at the time that the sacrificial lambs, those lambs of the first year, without spot or blemish, many of them, the ones in Jerusalem, many came from Bethlehem, were at this time being prepared to be received as the sacrifice for their sins, to signify the Passover of the Lord's judgment. And our Lord was taking our judgment with Him. Let's read one more verse, because this also that you're hearing tonight is the same thing that the Apostle Paul taught. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed, Christ, our Passover, the NIV says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Jesus was born the lamb without spot or blemish. He lived the perfect life. And only he could be the one, the lamb of God, to take away our sins. And he, even in his death, was obedient to the death of the cross to even not only give his life, but to die at the right time, at the time to fulfill the scriptures given to Moses as to when the Passover lamb would die to take away the sins of the people.